1: I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each conversation I talk to two readers about one novel, and together we summarize the story for you. We'll introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we'll read from the book along the way. And at the end of our conversation, I talk to our researcher, Ted Schwartz, for end notes on our novel. Ted always has something interesting to tell us about the book and the author, so if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Today I'll be having a conversation about the novel The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, hello. Hello, Frank.
2: Thanks for having us, Frank.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure. Ildi, Scott, before we get started, let me read a brief introduction to today's novel. The Great Gatsby was written by F. Scott Fitzgerald and was published in 1925. Set in 1922 on Long Island, the playground of New York City, it is the story of Jay Gatsby and his ill-fated attempt to secure himself a piece of the American dream. The story is narrated by Nick Carraway about three years after the incidents of the novel. What Nick comes to learn about his new friend Jay Gatsby, and Gatsby's relationship to Nick's friends the Buchanans, make up the story of The Great Gatsby. And while on the surface The Great Gatsby is a story of thwarted love between Gatsby and Daisy, the main theme is really a much broader, less romantic story. It is really a story of the disintegration of the American Dream in the late 1920s, an era of unprecedented prosperity and material excess that Fitzgerald called the Jazz Age. With that introduction, Ildi, let me ask you, is this the first time you've read The Great Gatsby?
2: It is the first time, and I have to say, the first couple pages are a little bit tough, but there was enough of an enigma in the character of Jay Gatsby that it made me keep turning the pages to find out more.
1: That's right. Fitzgerald doles out information about Gatsby very slowly throughout the entire novel.
2: Yeah, and you end up wanting to know everything about him and you never fully will understand everything about
3: him. You never get every detail that you really want. Well, we get a lot
2: of
1: details, we're just not sure which ones we can believe. Right. Well, Scott,
2: let me ask you, is this the first time you've
1: read The Great Gatsby?
3: Yes. In high school, it was assigned to me, and as far as I can recall, I don't think I got past page two, (laughs) but I have a far greater fascination for language and far more curious of a personality now than I did back then, and I was intrigued from page one this time.
1: So this novel satisfied your curiosity about language and human nature?
3: Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed this novel this time around.
1: Very good. Glad to hear that. All right, Scott, let's start the way our novel starts. Introduce me to our narrator, Nick Carraway.
3: Nick Carraway is a war veteran from World War I. He has returned home to Minnesota, and he realizes the family business of the general hardware trade is not for him. He wants to go east and get into the bonds business.
1: Well, not only is he a returning soldier, but let's mention he does have a
3: degree from Yale. So he spent time in the east. I'm sure he has friends there. He just has no desire to live out west where it's simpler and slower. And while the novel
1: starts with Nick telling us a little bit about his life, Ildi, he wants to tell us about Jay Gatsby.
2: Right. When the novel begins, he's actually returned west and is now going to tell us the story about Gatsby and his time that he spent in the east.
1: Well, when he gets east, how does he first become
3: aware of Jay Gatsby?
2: Gatsby is actually his neighbor.
3: Yeah. Nick Carraway rents out a small little cottage on Long Island for $80 a month. It's a tiny little place, a little hole in the wall. And right next to him is one of the largest mansions he's ever seen. And a mysterious man named Gatsby lives there.
1: Now, Nick Carraway is very clear to tell us that this mansion and the house he's renting are on West Egg, Long Island, not on East Egg, Long Island.
3: Why the distinction? They both sit on opposite ends of a bay, and different social strata live on each side.
2: I would say that West Egg, all the people are the haves, and on East Egg, they're the have mores.
1: And on East Egg, they've had more for a longer time.
2: Right. They're the old money.
1: And they don't particularly care for all this new money showing up on West Egg, do they?
2: Yeah. The snobbery comes out pretty clearly, and they don't associate with anyone on West Egg. Except maybe Gatsby.
3: Because Gatsby is so extravagant in his parties, everyone wants into those.
2: Yeah, but it seems that Nick can travel between West Egg and East Egg. Pretty easily.
3: That's right. Nick knows people on East Egg.
2: Yes, Nick has a cousin Daisy and her husband Tom Buchanan who invite him over for lunch.
1: Invite him to their mansion on East Egg. Right. Now, Scott, Tom Buchanan apparently was an old classmate of Nick's at Yale, but they're not friends by any stretch of the imagination.
2: No,
3: but Tom seems to want Nick to take a liking to him. There's just something about Nick that everyone seems to like and want to be liked by him.
2: Yeah. But
1: doesn't Fitzgerald also describe Tom Buchanan as a man who likes to be
3: liked?
2: Yes, very true. I think Tom has a need to be accepted and liked and desired. Yeah,
3: Tom Buchanan is a famous football player from when he was in college, and he really hasn't done anything else ever since. He still revels in that glory and has found nothing new to pride himself upon.
1: Sort of a faded athlete. At best. And actually, Fitzgerald describes him this way. He had been one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven, a national figure in a way, one of those men who reach such an acute limited excellence at 21 that everything
3: afterward savors of
1: anticlimax.
3: Yes, and Frank, the following paragraph continues to describe Tom as someone who would drift on forever, seeking a little wistfully for that dramatic turbulence of some irrecoverable football game.
2: Hmm. And Nick also tells us how wealthy Tom Buchanan is. He says his family were enormously wealthy. Even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for reproach.
1: But Scott, Tom and Daisy Buchanan are not the only people that were introduced to at this time. Both we and Nick Carraway meet Jordan Baker.
3: Yes, we learn about Jordan the golf pro, who is... Uh friend of Daisy and the two enjoy sitting around drinking and talking about wonderful meaningless nothings
1: but not just wonderful meaningless nothings the two of them are actually talking about something kind of important at least to Daisy
3: yes it seems Tom has some woman in the city
1: and they have no problem discussing this in front of Nick
3: yeah Nick shows up nice to see you cousin hey I think Tom
1: has a woman in New York well Ildy, maybe Daisy and Jordan don't have any problem discussing Tom's affair in front of Nick but Nick is extremely uncomfortable and he tries to change the subject
2: Right. Nick says, I saw that turbulent emotions possessed her, meaning Daisy. So I asked what I thought would be some sedative questions about her little girl. So we find out that she has a daughter.
1: And that's about all we are told.
2: Pretty much. And we kind of get the feeling that Daisy's pretty uninterested in her daughter. When Nick asks how she's doing, she says, I suppose she talks and eats and everything. And that's pretty much all she says.
3: (laughs) Well, Daisy does take the time to reflect on her daughter's arrival into the world. She says that she told the nurse, I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world. A beautiful little fool.
1: Well, Scott, I think it's an attitude like that that tells us pretty much all we need to know about Daisy at this point. Quite the raging 20s kind of woman. She describes herself as sophisticated. God, I'm so sophisticated.
3: And she also (laughs) says to Nick, I'm pretty cynical about everything.
2: These rich people are just so bored, and being bored just leads to their iniquity.
3: But Nick is really not anywhere close to being that type of person yet. Just a couple pages later, Fitzgerald wrote, Nick Haraway says, I was confused and a little disgusted as I drove away. It seemed to me that the thing for Daisy to do was to rush out of the house child in arms, but apparently there are no such intentions in her head. And as for Tom... Something was making him nibble at the edge of stale ideas as if his sturdy physical egotism no longer nourished his peremptory heart. But Scott,
1: Nick Carraway's night didn't quite end when he left the Buchanan's. He has one more almost chance encounter that night.
3: Yes, as he's heading into his rental home on West Egg, he happens to see the strange man Gatsby, who he's been hearing rumors about, wandering around in the dark out to the water's edge, stretching his arms outwards towards the opposite side of the bay over at East Egg.
2: Nick says he could have sworn he saw his arms trembling, and then he glances to see what he's looking at, and all he can distinguish is a single green light far across the bay, probably at the end of a dock.
1: Okay, Scott, the next scene in our novel is a couple of days later. Nick Carraway gets a phone call from Tom Buchanan who says... Let's go into the city. I want to
3: introduce you to my girl. Yeah. And Nick clearly, from the very beginning, did not think much of Tom, but still he goes to meet Tom's girl.
1: But, Scott, Tom doesn't take Nick Carraway to meet his girl in the city. They actually meet her
3: in the Valley of Ashes outside the city. That's right. About halfway between West Egg and New York is an area where all the industrial waste and ashes blown from the city's factories piles up and settles, and it accumulates in what Fitzgerald calls a certain desolate area of land. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke. And finally, with a transcendent effort, of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. Occasionally, a line of gray cars crawls along an invisible track, gives out a ghastly creak, and comes to rest. This is the home of Myrtle Wilson. And we should mention her husband, George. And her husband, George, who runs the local filling station.
1: But Ildi, unlike Daisy Buchanan, George Wilson doesn't know his wife Myrtle's having an affair with Tom. So they don't actually pick her up at the gas station.
2: Right, Tom basically gives her a code word which signals to her that she's supposed to get on a train and meet him uptown.
3: For a not-so-secret rendezvous. Right. That's right. Actually, the only one that doesn't know about this rendezvous is Mr. Wilson. That's right. Daisy knows. Daisy's friend Jordan knows. Nick knows. And Myrtle's sister is going to meet them there in town as well.
1: They actually all get together at an apartment that Tom rents in the city for Myrtle. And they escapades. Ildi, before we go any further, describe Myrtle Wilson.
2: Well, Fitzgerald describes her as being in her middle 30s and faintly stout, but she carried her flesh sensuously, as some women can. Her face contained no facet or gleam of beauty, but there was an immediate perceptible vitality about her, as if the nerves of her body were continually smoldering.
1: Well, Ildi, I don't know what Nick was thinking when he first accepted Tom's invitation to meet Tom's mistress. I mean, either. But by now, he's got to be getting pretty uncomfortable with
3: this whole situation.
2: Yeah, he's going to drink it away. Nick says that he's only been drunk twice in his life, and this was the second time.
3: He also adds, I was simultaneously enchanted and repelled.
1: In fact, Ildi, he drinks so much that at one point he passes out only to wake up to an argument between Tom and Myrtle.
2: And it seems that the argument is about Daisy.
1: Hmm, imagine that.
2: (laughs) Right. Myrtle is saying her name, and Tom clearly thinks that that's overstepping some sort of boundary.
3: How dare my mistress speak of my wife?
2: (laughs) Right. And so Myrtle gets a little bit bold. Fitzgerald says that Tom Buchanan and Mrs. Wilson stood face-to-face discussing in impassioned voices whether Mrs. Wilson had any right to mention Daisy's name. So Mrs. Wilson shouts, Daisy, 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 I'll say it whenever I want to, Daisy, Daisy. And just like that, (laughs) Tom strikes her and breaks her face right open.
3: And basically, Nick says, look at the time. I should be going.
2: (laughs) This was a very shocking scene to me. I definitely was not expecting him to be violent towards her.
3: And nobody really seemed to mind. They just left, didn't report it, didn't say anything, kind of forgot it happened. That's right. Essentially, Nick gets up, leaves the apartment, and then he tells us he gets
1: on a train, falls asleep. And then the next chapter just starts with... Music at Gatsby's house. Yes. Now, Ildi, Scott, up to this point, we've really met about five or six characters. We've been introduced to our narrator, Nick Carraway. He's told us something about his cousin, Daisy, and her philandering husband, Tom. We've also met the golf pro, Jordan Baker, and of course, Tom's mistress, Myrtle Wilson, whose nose he just broke. But here we are a third of the way through our novel, and we've yet to meet our title character, Jay Gatsby. But that's all about to change when Nick finally gets an invitation to one of Gatsby's famous parties.
3: Yeah, but Gerald sets the tone for these parties by writing, At least once a fortnight, a corps of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liqueurs and cordiales. By seven o'clock, the orchestra has arrived, a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and viols and cornets and piccolos, and low and high drums.
1: Well, Scott, that sounds like a party I'd like to attend, but Ildi, who does attend these parties?
2: Well, Nick says that he believes that he's the only guest that's actually been invited to Gatsby's party. Fitzgerald writes that people were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles, which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. And once there, they were introduced by someone who knew Gatsby, and after that, they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with an amusement park. They came and went without having met Gatsby at all.
1: That's right. And Nick tells us that while he recognizes a lot of these people, apparently some of them are famous actors or famous financiers, he doesn't know anyone at this party. But eventually he does see a familiar face. Jordan Baker. Ah, Jordan shows up.
2: So he kind of attaches himself to her. That's not a bad move.
3: She is a famous golf pro. Right. Well, Ildi, Scott, that sounds like a great party, but where's Gatsby? For the most part, you don't even know if he's even there.
2: Well, we don't know where Gatsby is, but Jordan Baker and Nick sit down at a table with a man of about Nick's age and a rowdy little girl. And they start to have a little bit of a conversation.
3: Nick says, this is an unusual party for me. The, he had received an invitation from Gatsby's chauffeur, but he's yet to meet this Gatsby. He has no idea who he is or what he looks like. And this person he's speaking with says, I'm Gatsby.
1: Finally, we meet him.
3: <laughs> and Gatsby responds... I thought you knew, old sport. I'm not a very good host.
1: But, Ildi, Jay Gatsby doesn't stay around very long.
2: No, he begs his pardon and scoots out. It seems he has business to attend to.
1: But, Scott, not long after this moment, Gatsby's butler comes up to Jordan Baker and says, Excuse me, ma'am. Mr. Gatsby would like to speak with you alone.
3: And she politely and courteously runs straight to Gatsby to see what it is he wants.
1: And, Ildi, at this point, neither we or Nick learn what the conversation between Jordan and Gatsby was about... And when she gets back, the party comes to an end. Right. And then Scott Nick tells us that one early July morning, Gatsby's car drives up to his house, and Gatsby gets out and says, let's go to lunch. Hop in, old sport. I'll take you to town. And it's at this point that Gatsby wants to tell Nick a little bit about himself.
3: In a very premeditated fashion, Gatsby is revealing various things about his life, specifically that he had served in the war, spent a little time at Oxford, received a lot of medals, including one little one from tiny Montenegro, And also that Jordan has agreed to tell Nick Carraway about himself and an important matter.
2: You're left with this feeling of he seems like he's on the up and up, but it just smells of something rank.
3: And this mystery that Jordan Baker has arranged to let him in on makes us seem all the fishier.
2: I think all at once, Nick is annoyed but interested.
3: But
1: Scott, before Nick can talk to Jordan Baker... Gatsby introduces Nick to one of his friends.
3: Meyer Wolfsheim. Nick asks, who is this Wolfsheim? Oh, he's a gambler. He's the one that rigged the 1919 World Series. And Nick says, the idea staggered me.
1: And Scott, it seems the more we learn about Meyer Wolfsheim, the more we wonder about just what
3: Jay Gatsby is into. Clearly, Wolfsheim is not on the level. But there's still a question mark about Gatsby.
1: Well, Scott, some things about Gatsby are going to become clearer once Jordan Baker
3: and Nick have their talk. Well, Jordan recounts to Nick how five years or so ago, back home in Louisville, Jordan Baker found Daisy, Nick's cousin, in a car with a soldier in uniform who went by the name Jay Gatsby. So, aha! Gatsby and Daisy have a history. But Ildi, Jordan's story continues.
2: Well, it seems that Jordan and Daisy were childhood friends in Louisville. And Daisy's family was not pleased that she was seeing a soldier. When Gatsby gets shipped out, her mother finds her packing her bags to go to New York and say goodbye to this soldier who's going overseas. Well, she's effectually prevented from going. Then she was not on speaking terms with her family for a few weeks.
1: But Scott, as Jordan continues the story to Nick, she tells him that a year later, Daisy up and marries Tom Buchanan.
3: Yes, that's right, Frank. It turned out that Tom Buchanan had a couple things going for him, which Jay Gatsby did not. He was in town, and he was for money. A lot of money.
2: In fact, Tom buys Daisy a string of pearls valued at $350,000.
1: But, Ildi, this is still not the end of Jordan's story about Daisy Buchanan.
2: No. Jordan finds her the day before the marriage, drunk as a monkey with a letter, presumably from Gatsby, in her hand. And Daisy tells Jordan... Tell everyone that the wedding is off. Jordan recounts the scene by saying, Daisy began to cry. She cried and cried. I rushed out and found her mother's maid and we locked the door and got her into a cold bath. She wouldn't let go of the letter. She took it into the tub with her and squeezed it up into a wet ball and only let me leave it in the soap dish when she saw that it was coming to pieces like snow. She didn't say another word. They gave her spirits of ammonia and put ice on her forehead, and the next day at 5 o'clock, she married Tom Buchanan.
1: As Fitzgerald writes, without so much as a shiver. Cold.
3: Disappointing.
1: Well, it's about to get more disappointing for Daisy. Jordan now tells Nick about when Daisy and Tom come back from their honeymoon.
3: It seems that even on the honeymoon in Santa Barbara, Tom is already a Flander.
1: The
2: honeymoon's really over.
3: And Daisy is a very unhappy cynic.
1: Well, Scott, I'm glad we finally got a lot of this backstory about Daisy and Jay Gatsby but we still haven't gotten to what Jay Gatsby wants Jordan to tell Nick.
3: Well, Jordan says to Nick about Gatsby, I think he half expected her to wander into one of his parties some night, but she never did. Then he began asking people casually if they knew her, and I was the first one he found. It was that night he sent for me at his dance, and you should have heard the elaborate way he worked up to it. And it turns out he asks Jordan to see Nick and have Nick call Daisy to have tea at Nick's rented cottage, right next door to Gatsby's mansion. And Gatsby will conveniently stop in and join them.
1: Are you telling me that everything Gatsby has been doing to this point was just so he could arrange a meeting between himself and Daisy?
3: The parties, the mansion, everything, just trying to get back in touch with Daisy. And Nick cooperates. Well, Ildi, don't keep us in suspense. Tell us about the meeting.
2: Gatsby makes the entire scene so incredibly embarrassing and awkward because up until now, he's been this suave, together, very influential Oxford man and now...
3: He is a wreck.
2: He's pale. He's got bags under his eyes. It's like he hasn't slept for days. Nervous. He's
3: talking to himself. He's twiddling his hands incessantly.
2: Right. Okay, the really
1: important question. How long does Nick hang around and when
3: does he get out?
2: He keeps trying to leave. <laughs> and somehow Gatsby just keeps pulling him back. <laughs>
3: Eventually, Nick does find a way to step outside for a time. And when he comes back...
2: Daisy's face is smeared with tears. And there has also been a change in Gatsby.
3: He is cool, calm, and collected once more.
2: In fact, he's kind of radiating this well-being.
3: And now they're all going to walk over to Gatsby's mansion next door and take Daisy for a tour of his elegant grounds.
1: Well, we know Daisy's all about the money and the show. Does she like this house?
2: She's extremely impressed by his house. It is marvelous. And in fact, somehow Gatsby finds more delight in every single thing she compliments.
3: Yeah, she compliments his shirts and he starts pulling out shirt after shirt after shirt until he has this mountain of shirts piled up. And He says he has someone in England who works just to mail him all the newest and latest styles of shirts.
2: That's one of the most strangely fascinating scenes.
3: Especially because Daisy breaks down crying. They're all just such beautiful shirts, as she says through her tears.
2: So materialistic.
3: But, Ildi, the lengths to which Gatsby would go to show off for Daisy go
1: way beyond just these pretty shirts. He actually bought this house for her. Well, or at least to be near
2: her. That's right. Gatsby even tells her, you always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. And when he says that, you automatically remember. That's what he was looking at in the very beginning when nick sees him the first time
3: obsessing at
2: and the scene has a obsessed stalker type feel to it
3: but scott daisy
1: was fully prepared to go along with whatever gatsby had in mind for
3: nick tells the story they had forgotten me daisy glanced up and held out her hand gatsby didn't know me now at all i looked once more at them and they looked back at me remotely possessed by intense life then i went out of the room and down the marble steps into the rain, leaving them there together.
1: But Scott, this idyllic moment between Gatsby and Daisy really doesn't last for very long. In fact, just a couple days later, Gatsby has a confrontation with Tom Buchanan.
3: Tom Buchanan is out for a afternoon ride on horseback with two friends, and they show up at Gatsby's door and introduce themselves and come in for a drink.
1: And Ildi, Gatsby really can't help himself. He almost immediately confronts Tom by telling him, you don't really know me, but I know your wife. We're good friends. That makes Tom suspicious immediately.
2: Fitzgerald actually says that Gatsby's moved by an irresistible impulse. He even goes so far as to invite him to his house for his next party.
1: And Scott, in fact, Tom and Daisy Buchanan do show up at Gatsby's next party. And it really doesn't go well.
3: Yeah, Frank, it's at this party that Tom reaches his limit with Gatsby's impertinence and says loudly, Who is this Gatsby anyhow? Some big bootlegger?
1: But let's be fair, Daisy wasn't very happy at this party either. In fact, Fitzgerald tells us, She was appalled by West Egg, this unprecedented place that Broadway had begotten upon a Long Island fishing village. So Tom may have ruined the night that Gatsby had hoped to have with Daisy, but Daisy wasn't very happy with what she thought Gatsby had become either.
2: No, she wasn't. In fact, merely because of Daisy's reaction to this party, Gatsby will in turn stop having these parties altogether.
1: That's right, Eldie. So to keep the affair discreet, to keep it secret, Gatsby fired all of his servants... Replace them with employees from Meyer Wolfsheim. So
2: that they will be a little bit more discreet.
1: But Scott, even in the middle of this affair, Daisy hasn't completely broken away from her husband Tom. In fact, she plans a party with Tom and Jay Gatsby.
3: Yes, the awkwardness is yet to come. <laughs> what was she thinking?
2: I think on a certain level, she wants to make Tom jealous.
3: And it certainly
1: works.
2: Well, Tom can only take so much.
3: Liquor,
1: you mean?
2: Liquor and of Daisy's taunting. And
1: Scott, where does that combination of taunting and liquor lead?
3: Well, it leads to a great deal of discomfort in the living room of the Buchanan house, and that leads them to jump in the cars and head to New York City to find something to do. Two cars. Yeah. Tom lets Gatsby and Daisy ride together in Tom's own car. His nice blue coupe. That's right.
2: And... Tom takes Nick and Jordan Baker in Gatsby's Rolls Royce.
1: If you think that's strange, wait till they all stop at Wilson's for gas.
2: In one of the windows of the gas station, you can see Myrtle.
3: Tom's mistress.
2: And Myrtle Wilson has her eyes fixed upon that fancy yellow Rolls Royce.
3: It's not Tom she's looking at. It's Jordan, the girl passenger, riding in the same car as Tom that she is fixated upon.
1: Fitzgerald has Nick Carraway tell us, I realize that her eyes, wide with jealous terror, were fixed not on Tom, but on Jordan Baker, whom she took to be his wife. But Scott, let's be clear, no one but Nick saw Myrtle in the window. Correct. Well, when they now get to New York, what do they do? Where do they go?
3: There's some loud arguments from car to car, trying to decide somewhere to go. In the end, they compromise and decide to get a parlor of a suite in the Plaza Hotel.
1: Well, Scott, they're all in the plaza, drinking
3: whiskey. We know a confrontation's coming between Jay Gatsby and Tom Buchanan. Tom finally comes out and asks, what kind of a row are you trying to cause in my house anyhow? I suppose the latest thing is to sit back and let Mr. Nobody from nowhere come into your life. Well, if that's the idea, you can count me out. Nowadays, people begin by sneering at family life and family institutions, and next they'll throw everything overboard. Fitzgerald says of Tom, he saw himself standing alone on the last barrier of civilization.
1: But Ildi, Gatsby escalates it. He says, old sport, there's something you need to know. Your wife doesn't love you. She's never loved you. She loves me. She only married you because I was poor and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart she never loved anyone except me.
2: And the whole time he's saying that, I was thinking to myself, it shouldn't be Gatsby who's declaring this. It should be Daisy.
3: Well, what does Daisy say? She does kind of choke out what he wants, but there's a certain lack of confidence in her voice, which everyone perceives. And finally she breaks down and says, well, I love you now. Isn't that enough? This is not what Gatsby wanted to hear. And the really shocking thing I found is that Tom completely comes clean with all of his own repeated past affairs so we've moved on we're over it and we're still sticking with each other
2: and that kind of confidence daisy finds irresistible
3: but scott
1: tom's not satisfied with just winning daisy back from jay gatsby he sets out now to destroy gatsby
3: yes he starts laying into gatsby right there in person in front of everyone questioning his business contacts the source of his wealth
1: calls him a bootlegger again
3: questions how well he treats his business associates, accuses him of abandoning people in the past.
1: Ildy, Tom is feeling pretty good about himself right now.
2: That's right, in fact, Tom thinks that he's torn Gatsby down enough in Daisy's eyes that he allows Gatsby to take her home in Gatsby's own car.
1: And Scott, as Tom, Nick, and Jordan are getting back into Tom's car, Fitzgerald gives us a warning. He has Nick say, so we drove on toward death through the cooling twilight. Who dies?
2: Myrtle Wilson.
3: Well, as you recall, Myrtle Wilson was staring jealously at Tom Buchanan riding with a female passenger in a yellow Rolls Royce.
1: Well, I do remember that.
3: And it turns out she sees the yellow Rolls Royce coming down the road, and she runs out to get Tom's attention, who she thinks is driving that Rolls Royce yet again, but he's not. Jay Gatsby and Daisy are in the Rolls Royce, and they do not see her in time to swerve.
2: Right, the newspapers called it a death car because it didn't stop. It was a hit and run.
3: As
1: Fitzgerald tells us, Myrtle Wilson lay in the road, her life violently extinguished. Her mouth was wide open and ripped at the corners, as though she had choked a little and giving up the tremendous vitality she had stored so long.
3: Tom, Nick, and Jordan, on their way home, find Myrtle, dead and a crowd gathered around and they hear that it was in fact a yellow car which had struck her. Myrtle's husband, Mr. Wilson, had also seen the yellow car and knew that Tom was driving it earlier in the day. And so Wilson is pretty sure where he can find someone who knows about this yellow car, namely Tom Buchanan.
1: But Ildi, we really don't find out the whole story of this incident until Nick finds Gatsby hiding in the bushes at Daisy's house.
2: Right. And as soon as Gatsby sees Nick, he asks him, did you see any trouble on the road? And Nick says, yes. And then he hesitated and says, was she killed?
1: And Nick says, yes.
2: And Gatsby says, I thought so. I told Daisy I thought so. It's better that the shock should come all at once. She stood it pretty well. And this kind of confuses Nick because he and everyone else was under the assumption that Gatsby was driving. And then it dawns on him that it was Daisy who was driving.
1: And Gatsby confirms that. Right. But he also tells Nick, of course, I'll say it was I who was driving. And Scott, Nick leaves at this point, but Gatsby stays. Why does he stay?
3: Well, after the day's events, he's worried that Tom may in some way lash out at Daisy and he wants to be there to rush into the house if there's any problems between Tom and Daisy.
2: But as you see in the window, Daisy and Tom are just sitting opposite each other at the kitchen table with a plate of cold fried chicken between them, and his hand has fallen upon hers and covers hers. They weren't happy and they didn't eat anything, but there was a natural intimacy between the two. That's right. As Nick tells us, I walked away and left Gatsby standing
1: there in the moonlight, watching over nothing. Well, Ildi, as the next day breaks, it seems that Tom and Daisy, as well as Gatsby, all think that maybe they can put this incident behind them. But of course, one person can't forget, and that's George Wilson.
2: That's right. Mr. Wilson is still looking for the owner of that yellow car, and he thinks Tom Buchanan might know who that is.
1: Tell us what happens next.
3: Gatsby is found shot to death in his pool, and Wilson is found dead in the bushes by an apparent suicide.
2: And it seems clear that Tom Buchanan told Mr. Wilson that it was Jay Gatsby that was driving the yellow car.
1: And Scott it's now, with the death of Jay Gatsby, that Nick Carroy finally fills in the pieces of the puzzle that was Jay Gatsby. The final details
3: are filled in by Gatsby's father.
1: Who actually does come to Gatsby's funeral. That's right.
2: And by the way, besides Nick, he's the only one that comes to Gatsby's funeral.
1: But this is not Mr.
3: Gatsby. No, it's Mr. Gatz.
2: Henry C. Gatz.
3: And what does Henry C. Gatz tell us about his son, Jay Gatsby? It turns out Jay Gatsby's real name was James Gatz, And from a young age, he set himself on a strict routine To go far in life. He made his way from fishing and rowboats to first mate on a wealthy man's yacht into the army.
1: He did have a distinguished service career. Where
3: he did, in fact, receive many medals for his tremendous service in the war.
1: And he did spend some time at Oxford.
2: Not going to school.
3: So he went to Oxford.
1: Well, Scott, clearly James Gatz or Jay Gatsby had ambition then before he met Daisy.
3: She put that ambition on the fast track realized he needed money to have Daisy.
1: But, Ildi, do we ever find out where Gatsby's money came from?
2: No, but my best guess is counterfeit bonds, because we know one of his associates was picked up handing bonds over the counter.
1: And this is something we think he was doing with Meyer Wolfsheim. Probably. Right. And during all this time, leading up to the funeral and at the funeral and after, where's Tom and Daisy?
2: They leave the country.
3: Nick makes the comment about Tom and Daisy towards the end. They are careless people, Tom and Daisy, They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made.
1: And actually, Ildi, before Nick finishes telling us the story of Jay Gatsby, we learn one more amazing thing.
2: A few months later, Nick runs into Tom, and Nick asks him, Tom, what did you say to Wilson that afternoon? And Tom says, I told him the truth. And this is when Nick realizes... Tom doesn't know that Daisy was the one driving the car.
1: And actually, Ildi, that's a devastating fact. This entire story was about Jay Gatsby trying to prove his worth to Daisy, and it turns out Daisy
3: was worthless. Sad. Yeah, all these events in the end drive Nick to go back home to the Midwest.
1: And it's on that somewhat hopeful note of Nick going back to try to rediscover some of his Midwestern roots that our novel ends. Right. right. Now, of course, during our conversation, we weren't able to get to every character or event in the book. So if there's someone you want to tell us about or maybe a quote you want to read, now's your chance. Ildi, do you have something?
2: Well, one of my favorite scenes is actually quite romantic. Jordan Baker is describing how she saw Daisy and Gatsby for the first time. Hmm. And knowing what we know now, it's a particularly sad romantic scene. Fitzgerald writes, The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime. And because it seems so romantic to me, as in Jordan Baker, I've remembered the incident ever since.
1: Hilda, you're right. By the end of the book, you forget that there ever was anything real between Jay Gatsby
3: and Daisy. Right.
1: Scott, do you have anything?
3: I do. When Nick Carraway finally makes it back home to Minnesota, he reflects on everything that he's encountered and lived through in the East. I see now that this has been a story of the West. After all, Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common, which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life.
1: That knowledge came very dear to Nick Carraway. Mm.
3: Sadly, yes.
1: I have a quote or two that I want to read from Meyer Wolfsheim, who was Jay Gatsby's business partner. Nick Carraway has gone to him to tell him that Jay Gatsby's dead and that Meyer should come to the funeral and Meyer says, I'd like to come, but I can't do it. Can't get mixed up in it. Let us learn to show our friendship for a man when he is alive, and not after he is dead. After that, my own rule is to let everything alone." And I think that's good philosophy. Tell the person you love them while they're alive. There's no point in crying over their grave later.
2: It's a good philosophy, except I think he's using that as an excuse because of his own selfish motives for not wanting to go.
3: But on the note of admiring people while they're still living, Nick was overjoyed for the rest of his life that his last words to Jay Gatsby were, they're a rotten lot, you're better than all of them.
2: And Nick's right, but there's no real angel in this story.
3: Ildi,
1: I agree. And that's where we'll end today's conversation about the novel, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I want to thank both of you for coming in and having this conversation with me.
2: It's been great. Can't wait to read it again. It's been my pleasure.
1: Joining me now for end notes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. So, Ted, The Great Gatsby is F. Scott Fitzgerald's best-known novel. And Ginevra
0: King's least-known. Ginevra King? Ginevra King. This was his girlfriend, first serious love affair. He was 18 at Princeton. She was 16 at finishing school. Madly in love with one another, but she was from way too much money, and in her world, a poor boy shouldn't think of marrying a rich girl.
1: Well, Ted, that certainly sounds like our plot of The Great Gatsby and the story of Jay Gatsby and Daisy. Is that what you mean by... This was
0: Geneva King's novel? No, actually, Fitzgerald was always drawn to women who wrote, and one of those was Ginevra. Now, she had not published, but she did write, and one of her short stories, which she gave to Fitzgerald to look at, was a story which eventually made its way into the Fitzgerald collection at Princeton University. And according to scholars, it was essentially the outline he followed for The Great Gatsby. Well, Ted, did Fitzgerald
1: ever acknowledge that was where he got this story? Or did Ginevra King ever tell anyone about this?
0: Not that we're aware of. In her world, she would not have discussed something like that. And over the years, that relationship remained known but so strained that it was never something that she would talk about. And I'm guessing Fitzgerald would not have admitted it either. No, he kept his sources very, very private until his death when his daughter discovered a lot of them.
1: Is it possible to read Ginevra's short story at Princeton? Yes, and I'm looking forward to reading it myself someday. Ted, I've got to believe those papers have led to many novel conversations. I'm sure they have, Frank. Thank you very much for bringing your end notes to today's conversation about the novel, The Great Gatsby, by F. Scott Fitzgerald.
0: Always oh, a pleasure, Frank.
1: I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. This week, I had a conversation about the novel, The Great Gatsby, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation.
0: Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at two 2DesignersWalkintoabar.com.
1: And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.
2: This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.